0: This season is made possible with the generous support of the Kimmel Shatsky Traumatic Brain Injury Innovation Fund. Hello and welcome to another episode of Injury Is Not Equal. I'm your host, Shaylin, from the Center for Injury Prevention at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. We're on a mission to uncover the truths and realities about injury risk and impact. We're laying everything on the table as we engage in critical conversation and hopes to change the narrative and raise awareness about health inequity and in injury. We hope you'll join us. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Welcome to the final episode of Injury Is Not Equal, Season 2. In this season, we explored the many intersecting identity and system factors that disproportionately affect risk and health outcomes from traumatic brain injury. TBI is one of the leading causes of disability globally, and it accounts for 2% of the population in Canada. Throughout this season, we spoke with many experts and individuals with lived experience to discuss the intersecting determinants of health associated with traumatic brain injury. In this short final episode, we're going to recap and have a listen to some of the key messages and common themes raised this season. In episode one, we shined light on the socioeconomic realities associated with TBI. We heard from Steve and Jay, who are both living with the long-term effects of traumatic brain injury. They spoke candidly about their lived experience navigating life day to day and the socioeconomic challenges that disproportionately impact TBI
1: survivors. I couldn't really manage family life um, and working at the same time. Jay was picking up a lot of slack um, and I wasn't really aware of that until she hurt herself and all of a sudden no one was picking up my slack. So I made the decision to, to step back and sort of engage in some more rehab and work on myself a little more. All these medical professionals and therapists and everyone had been saying for years how I couldn't work. All of a sudden I was like, Still expected to like go out and get a job and, and work in the classical sense of the word. No one would choose to live such a terrible, unsupported lifestyle if they had the ability to sustain full employment. Like right now in Canada, people are choosing to die because it's more attractive than living you know with a disability unsupported. There's a lot of struggle and there's a lot of preparation and a lot of recovery that goes into participating in activities. It's kind of like, I like to refer to it as like the highlight reels of social media. And like, that's kind of like the problem with societies. we like, we flip through these like highlight reels and that's the life that we picture that person living. And there's so much more than the highlight reel. And I guess like when you see people out with disabilities, like that's their highlight reel. And we're not really acknowledging that there's so much more behind the highlight reel. And there's so much effort and energy put into just Being out there and then so much recovery when you come home, yeah, there's a lot of stigma because, you know, people see us out and people are like, oh, well, you're doing this, so you should be able to work.
0: An impactful opening to season two. In the next episode, we sat down with professionals Julie Osbelt and Nicole Cross to discuss specialized TBI services in Ontario. Julie and Nicole highlighted various factors that may perpetuate an equitable access to specialized care in rehabilitation programs.
2: So many people struggle with the navigation piece, but if you layer a cognitive impairment or whatever else might be present, so for example, English as a second language, um, a developmental disability, um, dealing with elderly caregivers, it's extremely difficult for individuals to find the services that they need. So that's why a centralized place for brain injury across the GTA or a connection to provincial contact is critical to level the playing field on an equity level for access. Also want to mention like marginalized individuals. So individuals that might be homeless or at risk losing housing, they can have a number of barriers accessing services, even something as simple as like having a referral submitted. Um, they, they need to have a diagnosed brain injury, they need all that medical documentation um, and challenges with getting that referral. You know, there are housing workers sometimes, but there's a turnover with housing workers. And so it's there's barriers just to get in the door at the, at the beginning for some some individuals and, the, you know, there is a high prevalence of ABI within the homeless and justice sectors. And so they're, they need that extra support in order to access services. And so
3: one of the challenges is, is if you are leaving our hospital because of your postal code, you know, in Collingwood or in another city, the people that are going to be supporting you in, in accessing these services may also not know about these services there are significant factors with the fact that you have such a specialized injury and you've come to Toronto for your care. How do you get here from Barry? If, how do you get on the bus? Do you have a car? The costs of parking, even at our hospital are very expensive, even at the rehab sites, taking time off work, ability to commute two hours just to come visit. And so, uh, People who have some of those barriers additionally lose that support of having their families and their friends, and even the ability to advocate on behalf of the, their person that they care about who's experienced the brain injury, because they really, they're not able to be as connected to the healthcare team, and they're not as able to be connected to the person in their recovery.
0: In episodes three and four, we dug deep with researcher Lynn Hogg on the intersection between TBI and intimate partner violence. We were blown away by the prevalence of this issue and how underrecognized it is around the world.
4: If we educate the folks who are supporting survivors, if we educate police, you know, it, it right from the moment where a police officer answers a call, the pathways of what can happen for those those survivors are very different. So if a police officer sees a woman on the doorstep who's slurring her words, who's unsteady on her feet, whose recall capacity is a little bit... Um, funny she's not able to talk about things in a linear pattern she's sort of bouncing all over the place um, from a communication perspective or she's her emotions are completely out of control Um, all of those things if, if there's sort of you know a couple of beer bottles in the background or something police officers will often think that there's a drug or alcohol situation happening when in fact the first thing I think is did she just have her head bounced off a wall you put us up against breast cancer and the interesting thing about IPV related brain injury, if you go to the statistics and you go to the literature and the the research, your prevalence rates are the same. So you have one in eight Canadian women from breast cancer and you have one in eight Canadian women with the possibility of a brain injury as a result of intimate partner violence exposure. We've made a lot of mistakes in terms of assuming that we can have a one size fits all service model. So here, this is our solution to the problem. Just go take that and implement that into whatever community you might come from. And it doesn't work. But we seem to be really resistant to the notion of it doesn't work. And let's start figuring out how to do that. So when you have to be airlifted out of your home, away from your family, into a community that doesn't understand you doesn't know how to speak your language necessarily, doesn't associate, doesn't have a sense of how to to work with you culturally. And you're supposed to do that because you've just had the most violent experience of your life and somebody's concerned that maybe there, there are other medical implications that need to be addressed. Plus you've got broken bones in your face. All of that is supposed to happen because we don't have services on site. So you start to think, well, you know, okay, I can see why maybe they're not even asking for help. Layer on top, exposure to partner violence, you've got PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, rolled right into the mix. And that's one of the things I suspect that, in fact, we've been misdiagnosing brain injury as PTSD for a long time. Not to say it isn't there, the, um, I think what you probably have is is double happening all the time. Why wouldn't we expect someone who's been through that kind of experience to have post-traumatic stress disorder? But that diagnosis hides the brain injury diagnosis because it looks very, very similar in many ways. And it's really difficult to tease the two apart, but it's really important that we do. Those of us who who have traditionally been in the roles of doing the research, creating the knowledge, developing the resources, and delivering them, we need to step back. I mean, I view that as going forward and saying, okay, I have this really weird specialized knowledge on this very strange intersection that's actually happening an awful lot and is really, really important, but I don't know how to do anything in your community. So how about we sit down together, I give you the nuts and bolts, And you tell us what you need us to do with it and how you need us to present it for you. Really, for me, the solutions need to come from the community themselves. They need to be rooted in whatever the the cultural and racial implications for that community are, whatever those intersecting identities are, whether they be gender based or culturally based or racially based, whatever, they need to be rooted in those those worldviews and then from there they need to grow and develop under the direction of the folks who live it.
0: On the heels of this episode series Toronto City Council officially declared intimate partner violence and gender-based violence an epidemic within the city. This underscores the urgency for awareness prevention and support to address this pressing issue. At this point in our season, the connection and effects of TBI on mental health were mentioned by many of our expert speakers. And so in episode five, we look to expand on this important and complex connection. In this episode, we heard from Dr. Matthew Burke and Dr. Vinci Chan about the bi-directional relationship between TBI and mental health.
5: If you have a concussion or a traumatic brain injury, you're at increased risk of having symptoms of depression anxiety and other mental health disorders and that can be due to a variety of potential reasons one is that there can be disruption of the brain kind of circuits from the concussion and and traumatic brain injury that overlap with the circuits involved in emotional processing so there can be things like mood dysregulation, irritability, vicious cycles of anxiety, depression, insomnia, et cetera, things like that, as well as kind of social changes that can happen after a head injury. You know, some people, you know, have trouble getting back to their previous functional status, uh, school, work, et cetera. And so they're more isolated. And, and that lack of kind of social connectedness can certainly also have a, an impact on the mental health, but then also, is really critical expanding uh, academic literature on the importance of the other kind of direction. In that, we're seeing that patients who have pre existing mental health disorders or tendencies towards a mental health disorder, whether it be um, depression, anxiety, other cr- chronic pain disorders, et cetera, are much more likely to have a prolonged recovery from the concussion and the post concussive symptoms altogether
6: depression can exacerbate symptoms of physical complications after brain injury. So headaches, pain, fatigue. And at the same time, if these physical symptoms aren't treated, it can also exacerbate depression. And and so really treating one without acknowledging or accounting for the impacts of the other one can, can lead to negative outcomes for both brain injury recovery perspective, as well as mental health it's really important to think that one individual is not just a a person with brain injury. They might also be experiencing diverse social determinants of health that can positively or negatively affect their access to care, how the, the, the amount of support that they have, informal support that they have within the community, for example. We recently did a systematic review looking at integrated care for individuals with both a brain injury and mental health. And one of the most common barriers to seeking care and receiving care was actually geographic distance and transportation. And so a lot of the studies had noted that participants were unable to return to, uh, return to for follow-up care because the follow-up for brain injury and mental health are in two separate locations. And so they have to take multiple days off from work to be able to attend brain injury care at one location And then another day for mental health follow up care or if they're able to attend both, they have to travel very far distances because they're not within the same facility. And so that is a barrier for certain individuals who may not be able to take time off work, uh, who do not pay time off work or who do not have accessible transportation means to to get to different locations for follow up appointment.
0: In our next episode of the season, we learn that TBI survivors are two and a half times more likely to be incarcerated. In addition to being at greater risk for involvement with the justice system, TBI survivors face significant barriers and limited support to be able to meet supervision conditions of probation or parole.
7: There's a very long list of conditions that can be mandated at bail or under probation or parole. It's quite long and there can be multiple conditions applied to a single person. So let me give you a couple of examples of conditions that can be challenging for people with traumatic brain injury. So most, if not all people under conditions have reporting requirements. And what I mean by that is that they need to report to their probation or parole officer, maybe weekly or weekly. If someone has a traumatic brain injury and struggles with memory, there's a pretty high chance that they may miss some of their appointments. Depending on the officer, this could mean a breach of the condition. And that can lead to a revocation of their parole or probation and a return to custody. That's one example. The other often used condition is to abstain from purchasing, possessing, consuming alcohol and or drugs. Now, we talked earlier that, you know, about 80 percent of the people in the criminal justice system or those incarcerated have a substance use disorder. And there's a high correlation between traumatic brain injury and substance use. So, often people under conditions are mandated to uh, maintain their abstinence from use of alcohol and drugs. They're often mandated to do urinalysis testing. And if they're positive on the test, then this again is a breach and can uh, result in return to custody. Identity plays a role in all our social interactions. We can conceptualize people based on preconceived ideas of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be homeless, and these notions can determine if we think that someone will succeed in meeting their conditions and how much they are under surveillance or how much leniency is allowed. So this is why education for people in the criminal justice system about traumatic brain injury, mental illness, substances, homelessness is so important to enable an understanding that our prisons and jails are filled with people with chronic and debilitating health conditions and to build options that support success in the community as alternatives to imprisonment.
0: To close things off, we hosted another two-part episode series with Judy Garguero from University Health Network. In this episode series, we shined light on TBI in older adults, a group at significantly higher risk of sustaining a traumatic brain injury, with falls and motor vehicle collisions being the top causes.
8: If we look at the common causes of brain injury, so this is concussion all the way through to more moderate to severe brain injury, across all the age brackets, falls is the number one cause of a brain injury. So if we think about, well, why are we seeing more brain injuries in our older population? Well, this older population is actually at a greater risk of fall. Your attitudes around seeking out healthcare are also... Influenced by your sex, your gender, your ethnicity, your culture as well. So that, that plays, plays into things. And I think, you know, if we look at socio determinants of health, you know, if you look at the maps of where people have access to primary care and where people don't have access to primary care, um, You know, often people who have one area of marginalization or disadvantage, they have multiple that are stacked on top. Often the assumption can be if somebody who's older is presenting a little bit confused, a little bit disoriented, that, well, that's just because that's the way they are because they're an older person, as opposed to the fact of, no, that was not the way they were at all. This is a change. And so I think it's important to really be sensitive to what's part of the usual picture and what's now different. Are changed. But again, this, this whole ageism, it's easy to dismiss and say they're near the end of their lifespan. This is just part of natural aging, or our resources are so stressed, stretched does it really make sense for us to send an older person to inpatient rehab? Because we are gonna be taking those resources away from a younger person who could make better gains. So what I would say to that is in the course of doing our work, we've had access to um, administrative database data, and we can say that for older people who do get access to inpatient rehab, they are making the same gains as younger people.
0: I'm your host, Shaylin, from the Center for Injury Prevention at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Thank you for tuning in to Season 2 of Injury Is Not Equal. We hope you were inspired by our speakers and critical conversations to help address the social determinants of health to improve equitable care, access, and prevention strategies. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Talk Injury. We encourage you to give our podcast a follow so you can be updated when new episodes are released. If you found this season valuable, please share, rate, and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast.